Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. I am very excited for today's incredible panel. Returning to the roundup is the fantastic Lucy Caldwell. Lucy is a veteran political strategist, tech founder, and former senior political advisor at the Goldwater Institute. Lucy, welcome back. Where are you joining us from? My mom's closet in Phoenix, Arizona, Ron. (laughs) Good to be with you. And returning to the roundup is Mike Madrid. Mike is a national political strategist, our resident expert in demographics and Latino politics, My fellow co-founder of The Lincoln Project, he also lectures on race, class, and partisanship at the University of Southern California. Mike, good morning. Thanks for coming back. What'd you have for breakfast? (laughs) A little too early for numbers here, but uh, we'll be getting into that later in the day. It's great to be with you guys. This is a great group. On this week's Roundup, the response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine and what it reveals about America's moral amnesia. Republican Senator Rick Scott's 11-point plan to rescue America and what it signals for the midterms, Biden's speech delivery on the Russian invasion, political neuroscience, and whether this presents an opportunity to win over voters heading into the midterms. And finally, reporting season. In our segment for Politicology Plus members, we're going to take a look at the 2024 hopefuls already spending like crazy to build their national fundraising machines and why it matters. Politicology Plus is the only place you can get this discussion and so many more. If you're not already subscribed, you can use the Apple Podcasts app. Just open Politicology and double-click your iPhone to try it for free. Or you can head over to politicology.com slash plus to get in for 30% off. Let's dig in. After almost a year of increasing tension on the Russian-Ukrainian border, on Monday, Russian President Vladimir Putin declared two Ukrainian regions in the Donbass independent states. And then on Wednesday night, Putin announced a military operation that he said seeks to demilitarize and denazify Ukraine. It's a quote. And bring its leaders to trial, according to the Wall Street Journal. We are recording on Thursday, so the situation is extremely dynamic and volatile. Things are changing very quickly. Uh, Last night, which was Wednesday night, Russia attacked over a dozen cities and towns in Ukraine from land, air, and sea. They are trying to seize Chernobyl. uh, And if an artillery shell hits the concrete encasement there, it could send radioactive dust across all of Ukraine and even into countries of the European Union. And ABC News Chief Global Affairs Correspondent Martha Raddatz tweeted, quote, three hours before the invasion began, I got this sobering message here in Ukraine from a senior Pentagon official, quote, you are likely in the last few hours of peace on the European continent for a long time to come. Be careful. Earlier, the Biden administration had responded to Russia by leveling a new round of sanctions on two of Russia's most prominent banks, reducing Russia's access to Western financing and placing individual sanctions on public officials and some of their family members. The Treasury Department said the sanctions were aimed at, quote, powerful Russians in Putin's inner circle and believed to be participating in the Russian regime's kleptocracy and their family members, end quote. We expect the president to announce more sanctions today. Republicans and right-wing media responded to the invasion by asking whether they should care. Here's what Tucker Carlson had to say. It'd be worth asking yourself, since it is getting pretty serious, what is this really about? Why do I hate Putin so much? Has Putin ever called me a racist? Has he threatened to get me fired for disagreeing with him? 
Has he shipped every middle-class job in my town to Russia? Did he manufacture a worldwide pandemic that wrecked my business and kept me indoors for two years? Is he teaching my children to embrace racial discrimination? Is he making fentanyl? Is he trying to snuff out Christianity? Does he eat dogs? These are fair questions, and the answer to all of them is no. Vladimir Putin didn't do any of that. Hillbilly Elegy author and Republican candidate for Senate in Ohio said that he doesn't really care about what happens to Ukraine one way or the other. Donald Trump praised Putin as a genius for his tactic of declaring Ukrainian regions independent states. This is the guy who used a Sharpie to change a meteorology report, uh, gave props to the guy who used one to change another nation's borders. Mike, let's start with you. How should we be thinking about the importance of the Russian invasion, what the role of the United States is, should have in affirming another nation's sovereignty? Well, I don't think it's an overstatement to say that the world changed last night with the rolling of tanks and um, dropping of missiles into Ukraine and the, the capital, Kiev, uh, specifically. That the, the statement that you made earlier uh, was a little bit chilling about this being the last few hours of peace in the European continent. Look, this, this phase of American and U.S. history uh, ca came to an end. A new, a new era has just begun. And, and I was thinking back this morning about essentially when it began, I was a senior in high school when the wall fell and the world changed. A new, and a new world order was supposed to rush, usher in an era of, if not permanent peace, then long-lasting peace. And I guess this, this, this Pax Americana has, has come to an end. We we are now we are now no longer the Amer the the sole global superpower. This is a direct threat to that structure. It's done clearly in some coordination or awareness with the Chinese government, and there is going to be a test of American resolve and the the power of the West. I think it's also important to understand that this didn't begin with the launching of armaments last night. It has been ongoing for at least a decade, and the information warfare that has been going on, the cyber attacks, the, the, the currency strikes, all of this is part of an attempt to test the strengths and weaknesses of the systems of the West, the democratic institutions of the West, the ability to conduct business and commerce in the West. And while this, the theater at this moment in time is in Eastern Europe, I, I think that we are probably already in the midst of a cold global war that will only escalate. And I can't see, again, I'm not an expert in that part of the world, but I can't see just as a strategist how this resolves anytime soon. The likelihood of this spilling out uh, into, into some of the former uh, uh, Soviet republics, I think is extremely large. I think NATO, um, while well, at least initially the, the signs are good that that NATO is is consolidating again as a unifying force. One, the fact that it has to is dispiriting, but two, um, the fact that it likely will uh, will be used as further argument for further encroachment uh, by Vladimir Putin um, and continue to raise the stakes uh, of what we're going to see globally here. Um, and then finally, unfortunately. We're already getting reports this morning of Chinese aircraft in the defensive space of Taiwan. Now, that, that in itself is not entirely irregular, but it is concerning. And we need to be mindful that um, 
there are three. This is this is not a bilateral conflict the way the, the Cold War was. Uh, this is a, a, a trilateral um, paradigm where there are three great powers um, positioning. I, I just it, it 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 does not bode well to to hear signs. Vladimir Putin was clearly making an argument to the West about nuclear strikes, um, and I just I just it it, it made my I shuddered because I realized that I thought I, as a Gen Xer, would be the last generation mm. to have to worry about nuclear annihilation and the and the balance of power with with nuclear capabilities and strikes. And I realized that we are now going to raise a new generation in this world where that is going to have to be a consideration with three entities, at least not just two. So, um, troubling times ahead, dark dark days ahead. Yeah. Speaking of spilling over into other countries, we should note Putin warned other countries that interfering with his invasion would bring about, quote, such consequences as you have never before experienced in your history, end quote. Sounds like something Trump would say, really. Um, That's according to the New York Times. Lucy, J.D. Vance's comments, which I read earlier, are in contrast with his Republican primary opponent. Uh, who put out a statement on Monday night condemning Putin. Uh, The Washington Post is reporting that Ohio Democrats believe Timken to be Mitch McConnell's preferred candidate for that open Senate seat. What do you make of this tension over Ukraine within the Republican Party? We're going to we're going to dive into this, but what is looking through the lens of, you know, Vance and his primary opponent as a way to open that up. How are you reading the tension? Well, I think that if we take a look at J.D. Vance, he's an he's an empty vessel, and and uh, so J.D. Vance himself is 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 such a um, is such a collection of inconsistencies. You know, he himself is a also a Marine veteran, um, and and at one point probably would have told us something very very different about. Putin and about how we should think about Russia. But J.D. Vance, from his hillbilly elegy days, has made this move over to what we now see as the prevailing force in the Republican Party, which is this isolationist cum populism um, that we can really see in a moment like this that the damage of of that of that approach. And I think that you you really see that. you see that beginning to surface and and some fissures even on the Republican side between people like J.D. Vance and Josh Hawley on the one side, and then folks like Lindsey Graham on the other who are saying, you know, we we it is of global importance that we not let Vladimir Putin get away with this and and seize the way, as Mike is alluding to, these conflict zones are are interconnected. I think that one of the one of the problems it's it's interesting and we'll get into this i think later on but it's interesting to think about the way in which this moment has caused republicans almost like to revisit the fight of say 2010 and that moment of of how people like jd vance talk about so-called establishment republicans like a lindsey graham you know you've heard you've heard um People talk about neoconservatives a lot this week. You've heard people suddenly talk about, um, you know, the wing of the Republican Party who are still war hawks and the idea that they need to be they need to be flushed out, as though there's an equivalency between the U.S. and Western allies, Western European allies, 
thinking about how to respond to a threat that could create a domino effect that is threatening to democracies all over the world versus, um, say, going into the Middle East in the in the wake of 9-11, right? These are just very, very different, very, very different situations. But but I think it it shows how deep some of those scars, I think, of the post-9-11 era, of the Obama years, the Bush years, how how unhealed a lot of those are and and how quickly some of these things that we are not as focused on now start bubbling to the top again. And um, it's dangerous because it's a, a story of false equivalencies, but I think it's a good reminder um, because it shows what a lot of Americans, I think, are still motivated by. I think that the reason J.D. Vance and Josh Hawley are saying the things they're saying is because it resonates with a lot of Americans who have mistakenly connected their own economic security at home, their own well-being at home with the idea that, you know, uh, American involvement in the Ukraine-Russia conflict would somehow jeopardize that as opposed to thinking that it's actually the opposite, that it is incumbent on the U.S. and Western allies to preserve the American experiment and preserve the experiment of democracy um, to to continue to assure them of their of their wonderful lives. That is such a good point and so well said, Mike. The presidential historian John Meacham tweeted, uh, "Quote: The stakes aren't partisan. The issue is democracy versus autocracy, rule of law versus appetite of the ambitious." To encourage aggression is to dishonor the sacrifice and the blood of millions who have stood for freedom for centuries, end quote. So this is one of the biggest international crises since Trump uh, left the White House. Um, It's getting major media attention. But there's something missing. And the thing that's missing to me is there's no agreement on what values need, need to be protected. We don't have, you and I have talked about this multiple times before. You've made the point that America will fall apart if it doesn't know what it stands for um, because we don't have anything else to bind us together. And now seems like a moment where we're being forced to remember what those values are or to redefine them. And it doesn't feel like we're up to the task. It It just feels like, we can't make up our minds about whether or not it's important to protect uh, uh, another democracy from from invasion. How can we use this as an opportunity to reassess and reaffirm what American values are in the first place, not just within the administration, but from the top down, right? Um, or am I just, you know, being Charlie Brown about this? <laughs> No, I, I don't think you are. I think it it is a unique test. It is a unique moment. And look, we ha- as a country and as a people, in this time, this time of 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 global relative peace. I mean, we've had conflict over the past three decades, but outside of the Cold War, when America became the the sole global superpower, there was a lot of who are we going on? W- what are we if we are not defined by what we are against? Uh, the United States, you know, uh, America, the idea of America, the idea of freedom is such a relatively new concept in the history of human experience, self-governance and these freedoms. 
we are an exception. It's not the rule of human history. And we forget that as Americans. And when it's not viewed in contrast to, to, to an authoritarian or, or, or monarchy or, or dictatorship or rising fascism, there, we, what we have learned is there's a question of what that means and who we are. And we get lost a little bit or a lot of it. And it prevents some real challenges to unifying the nation. And even in times of things like a pandemic, we can't get we can't unify enough to come together uh, to, to to deal with to deal with a global you know pestilence or scourge. This may be different, and I'm hoping it is. And it, it, at least at the moment, you know, as we're recording here on Thursday, <laughs> you know, uh, it, most of the polling shows that there is a very divisive split in the Republican Party, and you are seeing it everywhere from cable news to the to the press statements being put out to Twitter um, statements. There is the J.D. Vance, Donald Trump, Josh Hawley, America first wing of the party. That is That has been the dominant thought at a time where there has not been a global military conflict. As it is the rising and as it is, is, is manifesting in the form of Russian aggression particularly, that's very important, by the way, because of the history of the Republican Party, uh, a history where most of the sitting members of Congress remember the Cold War, it, it, is, it is perhaps the last insurmountable hurdle for some of these people who have acquiesced so much of who they are and what they have believed in on policy ideas are now saying, wait a second. For God's sakes, this is Russian aggression. This is literally why I became a Republican. Like it could not be any clearer. And in that moment, you are hearing voices. The statement from Kevin McCarthy, which I read this morning, was actually quite strong. Mitt Romney, of course, maybe not a surprise. Liz Cheney, extraordinarily strong. What you would expect from a traditional Republican Party before it lost its mind. Right. And there are more and more voices. Uh, the uh, James Risch, the, uh, the, uh, uh, vice chair of the Ar- Senate Arm- or, uh, uh, House Armed Services Committee, Senator from Idaho, uh, Senator uh, from from Idaho, puts out a statement saying, in very strong terms, that this is aggression that must be turned back. So, so there is a, and, and these are these are public pronouncements. This this is this is gut uh, gut reaction, um, um, immediate, you know, putting a stake in the ground on where they stand uh, in the midst of a, of, a, of a rising conflict. These differences of opinion are not going to be able to. Ted Cruz was was very strong. We'll see yeah. how long that that lasts too. But yeah. my, my point is, the immediate reaction on the American right is going to be extremely um, divided, and, and I think that there is a window of opportunity that probably lasts a couple of weeks before the Fox News and Russian media machine and the alt right media ecosystem gets to start driving all the propaganda to see how long that holds. And my sense is, and maybe this is just me being Pollyannish about it again, it's probably going to be the one one issue since the rise of Donald Trump that will have a significant following that is not with Donald Trump and the America Firsters and the nationalists. And I'm not suggesting it will necessarily break the fever of nationalism and Trumpism and America Firstism in the party, but I think it's going to be really difficult for a lot of American conservatives who became Republicans in the 80s and, 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 and during the Cold War era to, to, to not see this for what it clearly is, 
when when there will be images of Ukrainian citizens fighting Russian soldiers hand to hand in an urban warfare um, um, setting, and when NATO is rallying and Finland probably joins NATO and saying this is a global threat, and Poland starts taking up arms, and the UK starts sending boots on the ground, and the French start saying we we need help, and the Germans are cutting their economy in half because they see this as a problem. I think it's going to be really, really difficult for these folks to start to keep saying, why do I care? It doesn't affect me. Because if, if, if there is a clarion call of history telling us what is coming, it could not be any clearer than not only at this moment, but what is likely to develop over the next couple of months. The history is, is, is not just echoing here. It's literally repeating. And we need to be mindful of that and drive that home. And my hope is that there will be enough strong voices on the Republican side of the aisle to push back against or at least disagree with the rhetoric of the Tucker Carlson's and the Sean Hannity's and the Laura Ingram's and the Fox media machine. So I, I want to believe the world that you just painted is real and, and holds together in that way. But we saw some very similar reactions in the wake of the January 6th attack. A lot of the, there, there were pronouncements and denouncements on the, in, the, in, the, in the day of, the days after. We know what they were thinking. A lot of, and, and, then, and then that faded, as you said, after the propaganda machine spun up and it became clear that, uh, that, that you know, Trump held too much power over the base and we needed to distance ourselves from the denouncements, right? And uh, I, it's, it's, it's hard to imagine that not happening again, especially given, you know, the way Tucker Carlson is talking about, has been talking about this, this conflict. So do you, do you think this has more clarifying potential and more sort of staying power, uh, than, than that event did? Uh, I do. Uh, I, I could be wrong. I, uh, anybody who says, I, mean, I hope so. I, I can see that case. I just, you know, yeah. Look, any, anybody who says they know <laughs> is wrong, right? We don't know. We've never been in this situation before. But I can tell you why I would think uh, it is, and it, it comes down to one simple um, reason, and that's different from the pandemic. It's different from January sixth. It's different from you know changing your position on tariffs and free trade. And that is this is this is military action with the threat of 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 a tragic loss of of many lives that will invariably get the United States sucked into this conflict in one way or the other. We are going to see the deaths of many, many thousands of innocent civilians in the next sixty days. And that's going to have an impact on public opinion. And I think being able to just say, do nothing. It's not our business. It's not our job. I, I don't think that that will be the appetite of the American public. I can possibly see that in the Middle East. I can possibly see that in a Southeast Asia context. I can even see that in Latin America. Can I see that in Europe? I, I don't think so. I just think it's too relatable for the American public. People are going to say, wait a second, this is serious because it is serious. This is, this is the first conflict of a new age. And I think the the immediacy of seeing deaths and urban combat in women and children with arms, which the Ukrainians will do, the Ukrainians are going to fight. They are going to claw back. This is not going to be like 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 uh, um, the Afghani's. This is going. This is the Ukrainians are going to fight. 
and it's going to be bloody and it's going to be ugly and it's going to be messy. And it's going to be, I think, a very important um, um, moment in American public opinion to see if the right, the American right will rally or split. And my sense is um, if it can't come together on this, then we're going to have to reconsider really who we are as a country because the only thing beyond this is basically, you know, a domestic conflict that, that could yeah. possibly, you know, Lucy, do you, I mean, I think, I think it, I think Mike's right that this is going to force us to sort of examine who we are. But I, my question for you is once Americans do start seeing this imagery of Ukrainians sort of fighting to the death on mass for the freedoms that we take for granted, do Americans start to recognize that they take their freedoms for granted? Do they start to find some sense of solidarity for the people who are fighting for their lives against a dictator? And how long can someone like Tucker Carlson hold together the narrative that Vladimir Putin's the good guy here? Well, I think, as Mike alluded to, Ukraine is a very different proposition than some other parts of the world. And one area we should just call it out is that Ukraine is full of white Christians. And white Christians is a much more relatable profile for many Americans, right? So culturally, those images will have a different resonance. I think that in terms of how this impacts people connecting their freedoms here to what's happening there, I don't know. I've said this, one of my biggest problems with American exceptionalism, as I've said before, is that I I think that the piece that is missing for a lot of Americans as they come up and grapple with their American identity is the idea that we have to safeguard this stuff, right? And 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 this is the kind of the kind of maga e idea of like you know freedom freedom isn't free, which is very tiresome. But unfortunately, those are the only people talking that way, and they're talking about a a different set of sort of I'm making air quotes freedoms. Um, so I don't know. I just it's it's very very hard to say. I think it's um, I think that Americans do deep down have a kind of patriotism at the end of the day associated with being a safeguard for global democracy. So we will, I mean, certainly it's easy to remember how strong that was after September 11th. We will see if Americans get back in touch with that. I tend to think that they will. And I I tend to think that the side of fighting authoritarian repressive regimes in other countries will win out that most Americans will ultimately support that but i don't think that this will change the bent of someone like tucker on on someone like putin but also more importantly on someone like viktor orban the um the frankly quasi dictator in hungary um or or other figures like this and so i think that that could be part of uh, the continued narrowing of what the MAGA base and core is. And, and as, as Mike has said, you know, that kind of heightened nationalistic energy that, uh, but, but also constricting of following. But 
whether that happens fast enough, we shall see. And it's probably not going to happen in this country before before midterms. And and the the point between now and when the U.S. decides what exactly it's going to do on the Ukraine front, I think could be drawn out and full of full of heartburn and full of really, really non-constructive infighting domestically that that actually in the short term really, really um, <laughs> lowers the bar on our already um, uh, degraded political discourse. One of the only stories to break through the Russia-Ukraine news came from Florida Senator Rick Scott, who is also the chair of the National Republican Senatorial Committee, where I worked once upon a time in another life, the campaign arm of the GOP tasked with winning back control of the Senate. On Tuesday, he did something <laughs> he did something McConnell would never do, which is he released an 11-point plan to rescue America that included things like finishing the border wall and naming it after Donald Trump, uh, sunsetting all federal legislation after five years, um, asserting that there are two genders and gender identity is immutable, um, barring the American military from peacekeeping actions, closing the Department of Education. Um, but then there were some really interesting pieces, like, for example, requiring that all Americans pay federal income taxes, abolishing the federal minimum income tax, limiting tax credits, and enacting 12-year term limits for members of Congress and government employees um, and capping the amount a government employee can make. This, the, 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 the list was sort of all over the place. It was a sampling of different policy arenas. Um, some of them strike me as things that would be pretty popular with, uh, with younger voters, like the term limits piece, which is sort of very popular. What did you, before we dig into this, what did you both make of um, not just the plan, but Rick Scott's move to actually release a plan as a as a you know chair of the senatorial committee. It's we don't talk unusual. about Rick Scott very much. We talk about a different Republican no, from Florida, and I had kind of forgotten about him. <laughs> so, if the goal was to remind us of who he was, it worked. Um, and Rick Scott has big plans, and I think people should know Rick Scott is going to try to run for president in 2024, no matter what he says. That's what is on his mind. Um, in 2020, during the Iowa caucus, Rick Scott, you know, peel, broke off some of his millions to to fund ads against Joe Biden, which was in the caucus, in the primary. Very odd. Um, he's traveled to Iowa. So make no mistake about what this is. This is not Rick Scott trying to help Congress get back on track and help congressional Republicans figure out what their agenda is because Mitch McConnell refuses to do this. This is Rick Scott making a name for Rick Scott. But what was interesting about it as I read his plan is that it was kind of like, um, it was like a mashup of a lot of, I mean, there were, I, I read some of the line items. It's like, oh yeah, I, re I remember when I was working on a uh, federal balance budget, right. right? Oh yeah, those were, those were such quaint times, those halcyon oh, yeah. days. So to <laughs> yeah. that, in that way, uh, it was kind of like um, 2012 called and it wants its mashup agenda back. <laughs> and in fact, I thought it was really interesting that some political consultant operative types were asked about this. And one of Rob Portman's longtime advisors said, 
well, what's really weird about this agenda, if you've just put aside all the really gross culture war stuff around gender and all that stuff, this guy said one of the weird things about this agenda is it's really hearkening back to a 2010 kind of paradigm of takers and makers, right? Like kind of the stuff that the the stuff that un, people think undid Mitt Romney, like 47% of of a, a people are just never going to vote for me because they're on the take. Uh, you know, we got to get more people paying taxes. And I thought that was so interesting because the it 10 years ago, a Republican operative would never be reacting to Rick Scott's this agenda, whatever the 2010 version was being like, oh, it's pretty dicey that he's saying, you know, more people should be, pay their fair share. That was the prevailing view. And it, this was just such a moment because Republicans so seldom actually revisit policy planks. And to Rick Scott's credit, there are actually some quite substantive policy planks in here. But it was such a weird moment to think, Wow, even now the Republican operative class no longer sees um sees things like broadening the base, the tax base as a core issue, right? That 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 is now they're they are so fully embracing of of this national populism that to them he is saying something that is that is out of step with with where they think they are going as a party. Because actually governing doesn't really matter as much at all, right? Um, uh, Mike, if the current trend continues, um, right, rising costs are going to be a major factor in the midterms. It, we were already on track for that to be the case with inflation um, and, and sort of the, the, you know, the, the, the hangover from the stimulus, the economic hangover from the stimulus, and whether or not the Fed could get that under control. But now we've got Ukraine and oil just hit $105 a barrel today. Um, the, the economic consequences of, of Russia's invasion are going to be just massive. And we're only, gonna, we're only beginning to see, uh, see that wave break. Right after Scott released his plan, um, the Democratic National Committee tweeted that the plan will raise taxes on tens of millions of Americans and has no plans to reduce inflation. So first of all, what do you make of the Democrats calling out inflation as a major problem, right? Like, I thought that was interesting. Okay, well, you're you're basically admitting that this is a serious problem and that you've got to get it under control. And you're pointing the finger at Rick Scott because he's not addressing it in his 11-point plan. Uh, but also, what opportunities does this present for Democrats heading into an election? I'm just, just listening to you, you know, paraphrase this whole thing. And uh, there's so much running through my mind. That, but what to, what is top of mind is, here we are in 2022, and the Republicans are putting out plans to make sure everybody's paying taxes and are backing the Russians. <laughs> and I'm kind of and I'm and I'm trying to figure out like when the exact moment of inversion took place. Did they, right? When did they trade places? <laughs> when did they trade places? And there's this blame America first, you know, stuff that's coming out of out of the American right. That's all, you know, America's the bad actor in the world and we ought to just, you know, and and it, it's like, wow, this was what just for you youngins out there, this is what the Democratic Party used to sound like in the in the 70s and the 80s, right? They've completely switched places. So that that's first. I think Lucy makes a really, really good point about Rick Scott generally. And and this plan really is this in real I think for the first time this is this plan is not a conservative plan. It is a nationalist plan. It's an America first plan. And it's kind of 
half sort of, you know, a nod to the economic, you know, issues of the Republican Party of the 80s, as she accurately pointed out. The other part is the culture war stuff, which is definitive and kind of speaks to this, this, this percolating and stoking Christian nationalism. But, but, but foundationally, it does not have an ideological core. And I think that that's really, really important because we are sort of, uh, at least in the American right, they're moving into this post-ideological age where it's simply about waving the flag, having a screaming eagle on your shoulder, and, and you know pictures of Donald Trump on a tank. Like that's what the Republican Party stands for, right? It's more of a coloring book than a platform. And, and, and that, that's a really big moment because that's being formalized. I, I don't think it's going to, to – look, let me end there on that piece. But I do want to say this. As it relates to inflation and the Democrats, I do think that there is an opportunity now if the president takes the right steps in Ukraine and is able to rally the Western world and demonstrate and, and convince people, I think, accurately that this is a bigger conflict than some you know far-off place in a world that will never affect us to start casting the economic conditions as part of the Russian threat and as the need for Americans to sacrifice to fight back before the fight gets to our shores. If he's able to articulate that in a meaningful way, I think at a minimum he can consolidate the Democratic base uh, instead of this view that all of this stuff is somehow out of control and Joe Biden lacks his competence and his inability to understand even what's going on. If he can rally the country or at least rally the Democratic base and consolidate his base behind the idea that a large part of our economic problems are because Russia is taking on the Western world, uh, threatening the Western economy, and this is part of the sacrifice we're going to have to do it for the sake of democracy, that consolidation is going to make the midterms a lot more competitive. If he's not, it's going to be it's going to be just a, a you know route a complete route. But I think it's probably at least at this time, and it's very 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 early to make yeah. this kind of a pronouncement. Who knows yeah. how the hell this conflict is going to play I mean, out? Everything could turn upside down. But yeah, that's where I would be messaging, and I would start today at noon by yeah. saying this is going to affect us. Putin is coming after us. Yeah. Uh, the cyber attacks, the misinformation campaigns, this has been going on a long time. We've tried everything we could diplomatically. We're now going to move into very heavy economic sanctions. That's going to have an impact with us because if we do not stop it here uh, on the line between Poland and Ukraine, we, history has told us how this ends. And it, it ends with sending men and women overseas to, to prevent it from hitting our shores. Yeah. You know, last week I mentioned, do you remember a while back when I was in California and I, I, I texted you that photo of the, uh, the, the, the Biden sticker at the gas pump that seemed to be yes. popping up everywhere, right? The yeah. Joe Biden pointing to the price of the, you know, gas, yeah. uh, total that yeah. says I did this. And I mentioned this last week and exactly to your point, like someone, somebody out there needs to print up, uh, Vladimir Putin stickers yeah. pointing <laughs> at the, pointing at the That's price great- of gas and slap great them idea. over the Biden sticker because, like, it's right at the point. It's right at the point of persuasion. It's exactly where they need to be. And yeah, fine. Inflation was already here before this happened. Gas prices were already going up. No, it's it's not one hundred percent accurate that this is all Vladimir Putin's fault. But it's a way to change the goddamn narrative, right? Exactly. Politology listeners, somebody <sighs> out there, I want to see that happen. Send I want to see Vladimir it happen. Stickers. I know. Send us pictures I mean, on maybe Twitter. If we. 
add the handle on politicology maybe, maybe. start a hashtag and let's just recapture the narrative and let's that that's exactly it is start pointing this at where the problem lies and start moving offensively instead of defending against these these attacks at this point in time i think there's a very very big opportunity for joe biden every presidency is tested this is his test and it is a very significant one and if he is able to corral this and get his hands around this it will significantly change the fortunes of of the Democratic Party heading into the midterms and where this is has been heading up until this point. I think that's a great idea, though, Ron. That's exactly right. It's that I mean, type. Maybe we'll of just print them and do it on politicology. Maybe we'll if I can if I can yeah. sort of get everything in line. Maybe we'll maybe we'll do that and and people can buy their stickers there. Um, we'll let you know. So, but to that point, uh, on Thursday, swag. Yes, swag. Finally, it's here. I know you've been asking. <laughs> This is probably not what you had in mind. <laughs> On Thursday morning, the New York Times reported that a group of House Democrats from conservative-leaning districts have drafted a legislative agenda focused on uh, passing Biden's most popular uh, initiatives, tackling rising costs and distancing themselves from culture war issues. Um, and it was written by Abigail Spanberger, Virginia, uh, Stephen Horsford from my home state of Nevada, uh, Josh Gottheimer, New Jersey, Dean Phillips, Minnesota, Alyssa Slotkin. Uh, Michigan. It includes points like combat rising uh, costs for food, gas, housing, and utilities, reduce prescription drug prices, copays and deductibles, and fight crime and invest in law enforcement. When was the last time you saw fight crime and invest in law enforcement in a Democratic Party anything? I mean, they're, they're, they're proposing funding for hiring new police officers, especially in rural and small town police departments, Reestablishing faith in America's public schools. Quote, I'm quoting, reestablishing faith in America's public schools with the expressed goal of keeping schools open during future pandemics. Um, they're supporting expanding existing grants to local law enforcement and uh, a new federal crime designation for porch pirates who steal packages to combat rising crime. This is happening in DC in my neighborhood at my building, like a lot. When you look at these two strategies, how are you thinking about their ability to convince voters and and just this package legislatively in general, Lucy? Well, a lot of the Democrats that you mentioned who are pushing that are Democrats who are in seats that used to be occupied by Republicans, um, who who many of whom were elected because of a disaffection of Republican voters from the from Republicans, voters from Republicans, and so. I think that these are people who know very, very clearly what their constituents want. And whether we like it or not, it's not pie-in-the-sky conversations about um, the the future of the country. Sometimes it's just, well, I shouldn't say pie-in-the-sky, but it's not conceptual, right? It's It's like, how will my life be easier next month, next week, next year? These are my pain points, right? My pain points are inflation, uh, you know, how hard it is to navigate school as a parent in a pandemic. And so I think you see that this is a very practical approach to try to solve these problems. I think that there's... What are my basic needs? Right. And there's been, I think we've seen some clear moments in the last month. For example, the um, the San Francisco... Um, uh, the recall of of um, school board members in San Francisco, you know, one of the most liberal places in the country, 
And you know, San Francisco parents are are fed up, right? And it's easy to see why, because they were being told during COVID that, you know, even after vaccines, even after cases had gone down, they were being told things like, well, it's good for your child to be at home in virtual school because it gives them a chance to learn about their culture, their own culture. They're going to have new learning opportunities at home. That's obviously insane. That's an insane thing to say. When have we ever thought that, right? And so I think that you see some some congressional Democrats really seeing the writing on the wall that there's not even a future for that kind of approach in San Francisco, <laughs> right? Yeah. And a, a real desire to get back to that. And it's it's especially important, I think, because Republicans are so disinterested in governing. I mean, again, other than Rick Scott, yeah. we don't even know what would be on their policy agenda no. in after 2024. And so I think that there's an idea maybe that McConnell's lack of interest in setting an agenda is congressional Democrats gain moderate Democrats because they can center themselves. It's also the last thing I'll say about this is that it's a good thing to anchor to one in that it forces other Democrats, Democratic candidates uh, to to go on the record about this agenda going into midterms. But it also uh, creates a wedge issue in and of itself that moderate Democrats can use to combat right-wing talking points. So to combat talking points like all Democrats want to do is defund the police, this, that, and the other thing. This gives Democratic candidates something to hold on to, to say, no, we actually are the people focused on constituent services and making your life better as soon as possible. We're for something. Right. Yeah. Okay. In this uh, last segment, I want to do something a little bit different uh, than we normally do on politicology. So I was watching Biden's speech uh, about the Russian invasion on Tuesday. So we're going to go back to Ukraine, but we're going to sort of turn the gem a little bit and look at this from a different perspective. So... Um, I know today, today recording on Thursday, Biden's uh, set to make an address at noon. So I'm not talking about whatever he's going to say at this upcoming address. I'm talking about the one from earlier this week um, when he was talking about the Russian invasion. This was on Tuesday. And I got to say, I, I sitting there watching him, I found myself wanting there to be a better uh, projection of strength. I wanted a, a, a strong moral argument to be made for why America has to stop Russia. And it wasn't there. And there was plenty of great substance on the tactics that, that, that we're using. There was plenty of great sort of explanation for like, here's, here's the rationale and here's right. There was lots of great substance in the address, but for me, it was lacking in anything sort of compelling, persuasive, uh, tell me why I should care. Um, and I also noted, like, I, I know this is sort of like taboo to even mention to some people, but like watching Biden read a teleprompter is kind of unnerving at a moment of crisis because whether set aside whatever you think about his cognitive capacity or his ability, whatever, all of that sort of, you know, uh, the, 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 the right-wing conspiracy stuff for set that aside, just watching him look, he looked to me to be sort of feeble 
and not up to meeting this moment. That's how I felt as a voter watching him. And I wanted something more. And on Wednesday morning, like, like I was just thinking, he needs to tell us who we are and what values we share. And if we don't even know or don't even agree, then how serious can we be really about defending them, about stopping Russia? And that, I, that's what I was waiting for Biden to do. And he hasn't done it yet. Maybe he'll do it today. But so then on Wednesday morning, um, I was talking about this in our editorial meeting. So every Wednesday before the roundup, uh, we record on Thursdays and it releases on Friday. So on Wednesday, our team meets at Politicology to talk about what we should cover on the roundup. What are the most important stories and why? And I was, I was relaying how I felt when I was watching Biden. And one of our producers said um, that what I was looking for is not what he was looking for at all. He was looking for a plan, a sort of tell me what we're going to do and, and explain the complexity. And right, he was, he was looking for a much more clinical outlay of, of, of what America's um, position is here. So then we had a conversation about the differences between how some people, uh, we, we, like we can look at this through conservative and liberal, right? Uh, so this producer is sort of to the left of me. Um, how conservatives and liberals process information about what they're looking for in candidates. And there's actually a field of study called political neuroscience that's been looking into whether differences between Democrats and Republicans are rooted in personality characteristics and neurobiological predispositions. And there was an article in uh, Scientific American about the research that shows on the whole uh, and I'm quoting here, conservatives desire security, predictability, and authority more than liberals, and that liberals are more comfortable with novelty and nuance and complexity. And there's a part of the brain called the anterior cingulate cortex, which helps detect errors and resolves conflict um, that tends to be larger in liberals. And the amygdala, which regulates emotions and evaluates threats, uh, tends to be larger in conservatives. Now, this correlation, I need to say this because my sister is actually a neuroscientist. <laughs> so, so if I get this any of this wrong, I will hear about it. So I, I need to say the correlation does not mean causation. The brain is extremely mysterious, even to you know the smartest scientists. So there's not a clear sense of whether the differences in brain activity actually determine political preference or if it's the political preference might shape brain activity. You know, there's this whole chicken and egg debate. Um, but one of the functions of increased partisanship is that politicians are working to hold together voters from their party. And they're trying to appeal to people who tend to think the same way, even if they don't think the same things. So with all that said, sort of as a backdrop, um, I want to talk about how important it's going to be for Democrats to hold on to former Republican voters, the white college educated voters they picked up in 2020. Um, by appealing to them in terms of what they're looking for in candidates, the uh, as a, less about the substance and more about the sort of the the, the personality and the projection um, of of you know the style. Uh, so I wonder what you both think about that, and then uh, and then I, I'd like to sort of look ahead to the State of the Union, which is coming up, and and talk about the sort of the 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 challenges and opportunities that Biden's going to have, um, especially with Ukraine as a backdrop in appealing to voters who maybe are looking for something different from him than like, like me, what I was looking for in watching his speech um, and how he can needs to um, rise to that demand. So I open it up to you, Lucy. I have to figure out which kind of brain I think I have. 
<laughs> yeah, right. And by the way, it is a spectrum. This is not like a you're one or the other. It's just that this this is the the um that's the generalization. Like that's you know, I've I've had this issue in the past where, you know, in, in like workplaces when people have to take a personality test and it's like you're blue, you're green, this is how you think. So I'm I'm always like perfectly I'm I'm just perfectly distributed across all the each each category. And it's like you can go in the breakout group with whomever you want, right? So maybe that's <laughs> I kind of have a feeling that's where I would I would end up. My brain waves would just be sort of right in the middle of the the neurological <laughs> equivalent of ambidexterity. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That yeah, I am left-handed. So um yeah, I I think that that's a good question and it's sort of funny that we've been talking about just before this conversation a Republican who is trying to put forth a plan. It's not my cup of tea, but a plan and then Democrats putting forth a plan with specifics. So the, all of those folks think Every American <laughs> wants a plan, right? <laughs> wants a, a, plan. <laughs> a, a go forward of of right. some kind. So I also think that the way that people felt when they voted for Joe Biden was that he was safer and less crazy, and that we were in a crisis point as a country, um, and that they needed rescuing from Biden. Uh, as a country, but Trump, from Trump, yes, Biden would give would give that would yes, the, yeah. he was there on, there to to do the rescuing. But <laughs> the natural extension of that is, it's like if you're a person who's raising money, or if you're going to get you know you're going to go get funders for a project or raising capital for a business, you make the pitch, and if you're really savvy and if they have a lot of faith in you, they're not asking for the kind of line by lines of the budget and the plan and like what happens in month one, right? It's like, they're like, yes, you are up for the task, go forth. But what they would be asking for two years later is, has it happened, right? Because there's an expectation that you, this person who made this promise that you were going to deliver, know that that it's sort of Im implicit that you know how to do all the stuff to make that vision happen, right? And in workplaces, if you're hired for a job, um, very similar. And if you don't, if you don't end up being able to make it happen, you get called in by your manager and get put on like a performance improvement plan. And everyone's like, okay, seems like we need to take a step back here. Seems like you can't manage your time, right? Or tell me all the tasks you have right now, right? This is like what we do with interns sometimes. And so I think that maybe there's an element of that happening here, right? The American people trusted Democrats and Joe Biden. And that was a different exchange of, that was a different interaction. And now in 2022, it's like the rubber has met the road. <laughs> What's happening? And, and what is that? It's no longer enough to just be against Trump. What's the forward-facing vision? I think that resonates with a lot of Americans. I really can't speak to the 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 brain the brain piece but i think that that it what the the what got you here won't get you there idea is very very true for biden and democrats right now it is the and and, and in fact you know this just this week on ukraine biden's one of biden's spokespeople began giving a long long riff about how bad trump would be 
in this situation. Oh, it's like, man. yeah, w- we all agree. We he was defeated. You beat yeah. him, yeah. <laughs> right? Stop looking backwards. So I think that man. I think that that is what that is really going to be key for Democrats. How can they show that there is something about them? There is a democratic agenda, a democratic plan that that goes beyond just like the stop. No one wants to be in a stop the bleeding cleanup situation. People want a go forward vision. That's I I I particularly sort of want to grab onto your point about what got you here isn't going to sort of like that's not enough, right? That's a really good observation. Mike, this is um a massive test for Joe Biden. This crisis in Ukraine. Like I would argue bigger than COVID because he came in, he like he had plenty of time to prepare for what their, you know, action plan was going to be on COVID, right? This is his first, possibly his largest test that he will face as president of the United States. <clears throat> and I want to know how, how important is it going to be for him, for Democrats to hold on to former Republican voters, the, you know, like I mentioned, the white college educated voters, how can he use this current conflict to project strength and appeal to former Republican and Republican leaning voters, even if it's not something his base is necessarily looking for, like to just sort of outlined, but with, with the state of the union coming up, this may be like this speech has the potential to create a turning point to change the narrative. It has that potential. It's, uh, it's big enough that everyone will hear about it if it goes well. Right. Um, uh, and I just, I, I wonder how you think he should be approaching this given, you know, the news of the last 48 hours, um, and, and how he may be able to use it to appeal to sort of traditional democratic voters. Yes. But also the former Republicans that he needs to hold on to and create a rallying point for America. If you think that's possible. A great question. And, and I think Lucy set this up perfectly. I couldn't agree with her more. L- let me, let me kind of expound on where she was going. First, let me say, um, there, there is a discernible difference between Republicans and Democrats. And I never would have believed this except for having you know, worked w- so closely with, with, with Democrats over the course of the past few years and, and Republicans for 30 years, but having worked at some of the highest levels of campaigns and with donors and pollsters and campaign operatives on both sides now, they do fundamentally approach campaigns differently. I, I don't know if there's a biological basis uh, for that or not. There, there very well may be. Um, it would explain a lot, but they are they are they are very different. And I think your experience with, with uh, you know staff that you were working with explains it exactly right. What is the plan to get out? Democrats always the, the biggest difference when people ask is I could probably write a book on this now, but in a sentence, basically, Democrats are looking for a plan. They're looking for policy solutions to answer questions. Republicans are looking to set the frame of the debate. And if they're not going to win on a policy, then they're not going to talk about that. They're going to set the frame of the debate, and 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 Democrats kind of find themselves frustrated by saying, "Well, w- wait a second. This is what we want to do to to solve health care." And the Republicans are like, "Yeah, but do you are you for or against flag burning?" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and, and 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 so the Democrats are like, well, that's just stupid. Like, no one's thinking about that. And no, that 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 you know, that's that is an indicator of where people are at. If you're having two different discussions, if you're setting the frame correctly, you're going to win the race. And that's what Republicans are trying to win the campaign, and 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 you know, Democrats are trying to win the argument. So set that aside for a moment because it, it is important that distinction. Lucy was 
100% right. In these Republicans that moved away from Donald Trump and handed the presidency to Joe Biden, these were voters that were voting against Donald Trump. And they were not necessarily voting for Joe Biden. And I know that probably breaks a lot of hearts, but that was the entire premise and predicate of strategically what we were doing with the Lincoln Project is finding just enough to move them off of Donald Trump and make sure that he was no longer president of the United States. These same voters moved back to the Republican column in the Virginia governor's race, in the New Mm -hmm. Jersey governor's race, and in the last round of contests that we had. And all of the polling indicates that they are they're they're not pro Biden voters. They 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 were anti Trump voters. And without Trump, there's a very good likelihood that they could come back. If the Democrats are going to be successful, they've got to get those voters back. And here's how you do it. Be very specific here. During Desert Storm, George Herbert Walker Bush had the same problem. He was viewed as a wimp. He's called it the wimp factor. Time Magazine said that he's got to overcome the wimp factor here. He was a president who was at war, and he was having a difficult time coalescing people around him. So what did he do? He put General Schwarzkopf in charge of the media and the messaging and running the actual war, okay? That left the president to give the sweeping bromides about the morality of America and what America needed to do. But he put a credible spokesperson in front of the camera to articulate what the course of action was going to be. That will never be Joe Biden's strength. It never has been. It never was. It was not in 2020, and it wasn't for 30 years of his professional career. That is not Joe Biden's strength. So don't ask him to rise to the moment now. Give it to somebody whose it is. If you start putting the generals out there to start making the case for what is happening, you're going to automatically get an audience with these people that were left, that have left him, that voted for him in 2020, but have left and start to come back and start saying, okay, this is what's going on. The other benefit that Joe Biden has, and again, this is not a a, a moral argument at all, it's a pure brass tax political argument, is Biden is fortunate at this time politically because he now has a villain. He has Mm -hmm. an enemy that we can rally around and against. And all people need that, but Americans specifically need that. And he's got a threat that is very discernible, whose actions are going to be apocalyptic, that uh, he's going to be killing civilians, that he's Russian. I mean, it's all there to pick up the frame and start casting this as us against them which is, is, for better or for worse, it's just the way politics works. He's going to need somebody to run against, and he's got the perfect villain. If he can't do that, then you know I, there's no other advice I can give him. But that's, that's the way I would set this, this, whole, this whole frame up. State of the Union is about the high-level morality, East versus West, authoritarianism versus democracy. We fought this battle before and we won. We will do it again. Like the ancestors that came before us, we will have to sacrifice. It's going to cost us economically, but the stakes of of freedom not being free are real, and we're going to have to go and fight that fight. That is that is that is the frame. And then that's what I wanted that, to hear. And then under that, he's going to have to start having spokespersons, credible spokespersons. Drop the suit and tie guys. Okay, drop the policy wonks 
and and the you know the the Yale graduates, I'm going to say, because yeah. of the audience here, get rid of those guys <laughs> and start, start getting people that are, are are more military oriented to start saying, this is what the agenda is and here's how we're going to start moving forward. I'm sorry to the Yale graduates. We, I'm sure those emails already underway. <laughs> There's one thing. Oh, you can always use a Harvard yeah. graduate. You can always use a Harvard graduate. <laughs> yeah, that that's right. In American Psycho, there's Go a ahead, great Lucy. line where, great movie, Christian Bale movie, where the an investigator comes in and he's talking to Christian Bale, who's a Harvard grad and who's a, the, the American Psycho. And he says, he's asking him about this person. I want her in the movie. And and Christian Bale's character says, uh, yeah, I don't know. He was part of that whole Yale thing. And the investigator says, <laughs> that whole Yale thing? He's like, you know, just part of that whole Yale thing. So, Mike. Uh, you, but Mike we are not sorry to Josh Hawley Mike, or J.D. Yeah, exactly. Short Roads. Like Stanford, it's all in here. Yeah. Mike said something so interesting, like a light bulb went off, that is so important. And we can even connect this to... Rick Scott, and we can connect it to those Democrats who've put out a new agenda, which is that Republicans and, and Democrats do campaign completely differently. And and I also have to say, as a person who worked with Republicans for years and now work mostly with Democrats, I mean, it's, it's like most never-Trump Republicans are pulling their hair out working with Democrats because just tactically Democrats are like, oh my God, you know, this guy over here is is actually this horrible authoritarian candidate is also actually a wife beater, but we could never use that. It's like, what are you talking about? Right, never use that. <laughs> oh, what? But, Get it in the ad. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. They just do not play hardball. And that is something that people like James Carville, who's of course a longtime Democratic operative, is like, you've got to get in the gut and gear and gut in the yeah. game. But I do think that what Mike said is so interesting because and it's reflected in those two contrasting agendas, because part of coming up as a Republican is you are you have like an ethos, right? Like like small government, like free market, limit the size and scope of government course. Is it you've touched? Th- yeah. yeah. And and Democrats actually often will even pay lip service to those same things, right? Like, of course, I don't want government to be too big, but, right, but they're not like, I'm for big government, right? Right. Republicans are often for a, a framework and an approach, and Democrats are for incremental policies. So Republicans usually are, traditionally, it would be more like, we, this is how we want government to interact with people's lives, right? We want government to stay out of, the lives of entrepreneurs and get out of their way so that they can, you know, create activity in the economy and thrive. And Republicans are also willing to accept that in in these systems, you're just trying to, you're kind of trying to like do as best you can. And some people are going to slip through the cracks, but but you do the thing that you think, the approach that you think all boats rise with with the tides. Democrats, I think, tend to see a problem somewhere something happening. They're very driven by personal story, those narratives. And it's like, you know, every hammer sees a nail, right? And it's like, oh my gosh, there's this issue going on. So we're going to do this thing to solve it, right? And so it's it's often democratic policy reforms are usually very reactive and responsive to something happening. Whereas Republican policy reforms generally are definitional. Like we, um, you know, this is how we should approach our federal debt, right? Our approach, this is how we should approach, um, you know, any any number of things. It's, it's all about a framework. And Democrats 
at some point at, or another could be on either side of the issue. And Republicans, of course, now are complete hypocrites and obviously have no agenda. But but their approach is very, very focused on the now and the this this issue come, popping up here and how people are feeling. And so that, I think, Mike has set up that frame that is a really interesting way to think about how voters respond to go back to your, yeah. to go back to your, yes. because one of the things that we're going to discover over the long term is our voters only motivated by, we know they want actual results. We know they want to see how this is going to improve their lives, but are, do voters do or not connect their votes and, and whom they support and those policy reforms with a broader framework? And, and I actually tend to think that they do. And I think that Democrats often really, really underestimate how, can, how plugged in a lot of voters are to wanting to be part of a, part of a longer term trajectory and approach that, that has yeah. a consistent frame. And how powerful that framework can be. Yes. Like emotionally. Yes. Okay. This was a doozy today. Thank you for indulging me in that uh, segment. Now that we're up to speed on a few of the biggest stories this week, let's talk about what you are watching under the radar, Mike. What do you got? Boy, I hate to say, I, I haven't been watching anything under the radar. I just I've been <laughs> there's, there's very little under the radar. <laughs> yeah, by so much of this that's been going on um, with 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 obviously with the Ukraine situation. Um, I, I will say this: I, I, I have been trying to to spend a lot of time looking under the hood as much as I possibly can, and I was particularly perplexed by Germany's slow roll into the coalition. And then when it came to light that um, so many of their former high-ranking politicians were on the payroll of the Russian government as lobbyists, the light really started to go on. And and I, I when I think of the new type of warfare that we are going to be engaged in, there's going to have to be a lot of research and work focused on how much the Russians and the oligarchs and petrodollars were used to pay off Western politicians, Western consultants, political consultants, operatives, lobbyists, um, and media networks. Um, the, the playing that long game that way is just so um, smart. It's kind of like looking back. It may sound conspiratory, you know, conspiracy theory oriented, but looking back, it's 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 kind of obvious. It's like, why would you not do that? Make those kind of investments to destabilize. Uh, democracies when it's really so easy when we are so unguarded um i think we will look back in the in the very near future and start um recognizing that even though this conflict is military in ukraine it's really going to be a different type of global world war and it's it's not necessarily going to be you know open war uh, shooting and and killing uh on on the streets of democracies but it's absolutely going to be about cyber attacks currency attacks, market attacks, and uh, misinformation um, campaigns that will be very sophisticated, unlike that we've ever seen before, because of the advantage and the very low cost of entry to, to enact those types of strategies. So yeah, that's what I'm looking for, looking at. Totally agree. Lucy, what do you got? So this is less of an under-the-radar story and more of a flag, but I spent a little time this week reading a Chronicle of Higher Ed piece about something that happened at GW 
uh, during the Olympics, which was that a uh, there was this little flurry of activity because some students had posted these actually, I think, kind of beautiful um, art, artful posters that at first blush looked like they were posters um, depicting like promotional posters for the Olympics. But in fact, when you look closely at them, the images are images of, of athletes sort of in the Olympic Beijing mold um, carrying out violent acts against Uyghurs. And so this was, a, these were protest posters to protest ongoing Chinese uh, oppression of the Uyghurs. And a student group that is maybe not so much of a student group, that is more of kind of a, a front group in a way, uh, said that these were offensive and, and racist. And they actually went so far as to pursue getting these taken down under Georgetown's uh, bias incident reporting team, um, which is part of, or excuse me, G George Washington's, the GW's bias incident reporting team, which is part of GW's broader diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, approach. And this, once this happened, these posters were taken down and the students who had put them up were kind of given a slap on the wrist. And then someone was like, wait, these are, they're just trying to protest the genocide of Uyghurs being carried out by the Chinese state. And so it's a really interesting episode. They they said, okay, they reverse course, administrators reverse course. But this story really has it all and I think is worth paying attention to what's happening. And then this is the kind of thing that's happening on a lot of college campuses. One, it has the kind of cancel culture piece and the kind of, are you woke? Are you a snowflake piece, right? It shows how some a program at the university that is obviously has the best intentions, I think, can actually be, end up being used as a tool for bad and a tool for tamping down really, really important speech protesting genocide. It also has their questions about where the funding of some of the student groups who were saying these posters were racist comes from and the degree to which um, foreign actors, in this case, the Chinese government is penetrating uh, conversations and discourse on college campuses. I think that when we think we often talk about Russian disinformation and propaganda in our discourse from the Russians, but that, that this is also happening from the Chinese. And it also, in a moment that we're talking a lot about Russia and we, we think about the way, you know, there's both sides caricature the others. Russian or Republicans say that Democrats are too soft on China. Democrats say Republicans have been too soft on Russia. And we're in a moment of, of reckoning where it's kind of maybe we maybe these are very interconnected. It would be great as we find our American unified voice if we could agree that both of these regimes are terrible, anti-democratic, authoritarian regimes, and that just as we will not tolerate Vladimir Putin, we should not be supporting, say, the National Basketball Association playing footsie with the Chinese, and that we mm -hmm. could our, we could find our little core American spirit, <laughs> in this case, a thing that's happening on, on a college campus of a prominent American university. In the middle of the American yes. capital. <laughs> And yeah. say, wait a minute, maybe we all need to kind of put aside our our partisan leanings. Maybe we need to put aside also 
you know, our our fear of offending anyone and and come to terms with with what we're with what we're up against, which is not actually just like some students hurt feelings or, um, you know, inability, uh, you know, an inability to confront an uncomfortable poster, but a a foreign government trying to have an impact on discourse in an American university about the genocide of Uyghurs. So it's more like a flag because to me, there are so many pieces of this story that make my brain go in a million directions, but it's, it's worth, it's worth following. It's, it's worth following. And I followed this story as it was unfolding in real time. And I was mortified and I didn't say anything because it was the middle of a pile on going on. And I didn't want to step into it because Twitter's so reactive and like, it's just like, it was a mess. And this article that you mentioned did a really good job at sort of um, telling the story of what happened and like sort of capturing everything. So we'll link to that in the show notes and, um, and you can go check it out if you, if you are curious, but I think you're, it's, it presents a really important um, case study in how this can all go sideways really quickly. Lucy, Mike, uh, before we go to the after party, AKA Politicology Plus, this is going to be a fun one. Um, where can everybody find you on the internet, Lucy? I'm on Twitter at Lucy M. Caldwell. And Mike? Find me on Twitter at Madrid underscore Mike. And I'm on Twitter at Ron Steslow. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening today. You can support the show by joining the growing, thriving community of Politicology Plus members and gain access to hours of special content designed to help you think like a political strategist and look further down the road than everyone else and understand the forces and figures shaping the fight for democracy. You can unlock this premium content at politicology.com slash plus. If you have any questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us as always at podcast at politicology.com. Even if we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.